you are as secure in your position as Jesus Christ himself is because you are in him. He is your representative and he will never fail you like Adam did. And you will always eternally get the credit for what he does. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello again, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom will conclude his current series with part eight of The True and Better Adam. Think about this for a moment. At the cross, as Jesus was dying, incurring the penalty of sin for everyone who would repent and believe on Him, God the Father had already made Him your representative. He did it in eternity past. He died for you. You were the one He represented, and He died in your place for your sins. Long before you had ever been born or ever repented and believed, God had already appointed Christ to be your representative because He had chosen you to be His own. How and why? Was there something special about you that made God choose you? Or was it just a matter of complete and utter grace? Grace unknown. Keep that in mind as we join our teacher now for answers on The Word Unleashed. The Greek verb translated made here is not the normal word for made. It's, it's a word that never means to change someone's character. That's not what's happening here. In fact, the most common New Testament usage of this word is to appoint or to change someone's status. Paul uses this verb only three times in all of his letters. Twice here in verse 19. The only other time he uses this word made is in Titus chapter 1 verse 5 where it translates appoint elders in every city. Appoint. Appoint is the word there. So in other words, this word means to recognize someone as having a certain status and to treat them as that status deserves, just like you do with an elder. When we appoint elders in this church, as, as Paul charged Titus to do, we don't change that man's basic character. He doesn't come down here and we sort of wave the wand and he becomes a different person. No, we acknowledge him to be an elder and treat him as an elder should be treated. That's what happens to us in Adam. Because of Adam's disobedience, God put us in the category of sinners, and he treated us as such. Before our birth, unrelated to our own actions, he did so solely because of the actions of Adam, whom he had appointed as our representative. Remember that, that becomes crucial. But now again, for us, that used to be, that's before in Adam, but now it's changed. Now in Christ, God regards us. He thinks of us. He considers us as righteous. Notice again verse 19. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so, in the same way, through the obedience of the one, the many, that is all he represents, will be made righteous. The Greek word for obedience here is the opposite of the word disobedience, but it, again, is, it's a very picturesque word. This word literally means to listen under. That is to truly listen, to submit to what you hear, and then to do it. Paul here says, through the obedience of the one. Underscore that in your Bible. 
the, the obedience of the one. It's not your righteousness that saves you. It's not your obedience that saves you. It's the obedience of the one, Jesus Christ. Through the obedience of the one, all he represents, the many, will be made righteous. Now, notice, will be made, that's future tense. Don't misunderstand, that doesn't imply that justification is future in some way for us. He's already explained back in chapter, chapters 4 and 5 that justification is a present reality for us. We've already been declared right with God. Go back to chapter 5, verse 1, having been justified, it's already happened. So why does he use the future tense then? He's making the point that this is God's common way of operating. From this point and forever, whenever another person repents and believes, they will be made righteous. And again, what does that mean? It means to appoint. It's the same word. God appoints them as righteous. He, he regards them as righteous. He places them in the category of righteous. Charles Hodge, the great commentator on Romans, writes, the disobedience of Adam was the ground of the many being placed in the category of sinners, and the obedience of Christ was the ground on which the many are to be placed in the category of the righteous. Lloyd-Jones is even more direct. Listen to what he writes. Look at yourself in Adam. Though you had done nothing, you were declared a sinner. Look at yourself in Christ and see that though you have done nothing, you are declared to be righteous. That's the parallel. As even so, as even so, just like you did nothing and you were condemned in Adam, you do nothing and you are declared righteous in Christ. God recognizes us as righteous and treats us as if we were righteous solely on the basis of the obedience of the one, our representative. So you see then that verses 18 and 19 are at the heart of Paul's argument. They're at the heart of the gospel. But Paul's not done. He can't finish the section until he answers a, a sort of an aside, a question he knows that, that the Jews would have throughout this discussion. And so he ends in verses 20 and 21, he ends this section by addressing how the law fits the scheme he's been explaining. How the law fits the plan of redemption. Because the Jews, listening to this portion of Romans read in the churches in Rome, would have immediately thought to themselves, wait a minute, Paul, you talked about Adam, that's Genesis. You talked about Christ, that's the New Testament Gospels. What about all that stuff in between? What about Moses? What about the law? What part does that play in the plan of redemption? And so Paul briefly explains. He's going to address this more fully in the next couple of chapters, but he briefly explains here the crucial role that God's law plays. Look at the beginning of verse 20. The law came in so that the transgression would increase. Now again, under the inspiration of the Spirit, Paul chooses his words carefully, and he chooses a very unusual word here. The word come in is not the normal word for come in in the New Testament. It's only used two times in the entire New Testament. Here, and the only other time it's used, it's in Galatians 2, where it's talking about the Judaizers who sneaked in to the churches. That's what he says. The law sneaked in. It slipped in. He's not being critical of the law. He's basically making a point. He's saying the law doesn't serve a primary role in the plan of redemption. It serves a secondary role. It slipped in. It sneaked in. 
So what is the role of the law? Well, in a nutshell, it's this. The law prepares us for Christ. The law prepares us for Christ. How? Well, very briefly, Paul explains. First of all, it prepares us for Christ because it increases the knowledge of sin. Look back at chapter 3, verse 20. He says, the law, through the law, comes the knowledge of sin. It's through God's law we learn what sin is. Go to chapter 7, verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, Paul says, I would not personally have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. I mean, think about this for a moment. Coveting, desiring something somebody else has, that doesn't seem like a very, a very bad thing, right? I mean, on its surface, it's like, how serious could that be? But then the Ten Commandments come along and God says, you shall not covet. And guess what? You now know, ooh, that's sin. I, I shouldn't do that. This is wrong. The law makes it clear what God forbids and what He demands. That's how I know what sin is. Secondly, the law also prepares me for Christ by increasing the seriousness and the guilt of sin. It turns sin into rebellion. Look at chapter 4, verse 15. We already saw this together. Paul says, where there is no law, there also is no violation. It doesn't mean if there's not the law, it's not sin. I mean, you break a law without knowing the law, you're still guilty, right? He's not saying that. What he's saying is, where there isn't a written law, it's not as serious as when you know the written law, you've seen the no trespassing sign, and you do it anyway. It's much more serious. What was at first sin against the substance of the law written on the heart, Romans 2, becomes willful rebellion against the clear written commands of God. It becomes much more serious. Number three, and this is surprising, the law increases the frequency of sin. Is it because something's wrong with the law? No, it's because something's wrong with us. It draws out our sinful hearts. We crave that which we most are forbidden from doing. That's our sinfulness. Look at chapter 7, verse 8. Paul using himself as an example. And this whole idea of coveting, the command you shall not covet. Chapter 7, verse 8. But sin, that is my sinfulness, my fallenness, taking opportunity through the commandment you shall not covet, produced in me coveting of every kind. You see what he's saying? He's saying, once I knew the law, it didn't prevent me from sinning. It encouraged me to sin more because I am fallen and I want what I can't have. And if you doubt if that's true, let me, just, let me just send you on a little experiment. Take your own children, young children, or take somebody else's young children, or your grandchildren, and put them in a room and, and let them play a little while, and then say to them, okay, enjoy yourself, you can do whatever you want, don't touch that. It doesn't matter what that is, just, just point out something and say, don't touch that. And then leave and sort of spy back on what happens. They may have had no interest in whatever that was at all until you said it. But once you said it, it becomes keenly interesting. They don't want anything but that. That's our fallenness. That's human nature. That's how the law works. It, it increases the frequency of sin because of our own twisted nature. By the way, this is why legalism doesn't work. Because legalism has, not only does it not have any power to control the flesh, 
but make more laws than God has, and you excite the flesh. So, the law can't prevent sin, can't save us from sin. In fact, it only makes our problem worse. We sin more. And so Paul adds another function of the law in Galatians 3, verse 24. It serves as a tutor to drive us to Christ. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. So the law increases our knowledge of sin. It increases the seriousness and guilt of sin. It even increases the frequency of sin. And all of that makes me say, you know what? I am never going to be made right with God by keeping His law. And it drives me to Christ. So the law has a crucial role. It prepares us for Christ. But Paul also wants us to know the greater role of grace. And he introduces this in the middle of verse 20 through verse 21. This is only the second time that Paul has mentioned the contrast between law and grace. It's a theme he's going to come back to and develop at length in chapters 6 and 7. So I'll leave that for then. But, but here he's simply pointing out that although the law caused sin to increase, verse 20, in, in the ways we talked about, the law caused sin to increase, where sin increased, where sin grew is the word, grace abounded. Now, that word abounded is not the same word for increase. It's a totally different Greek word. It means to have way more than enough. So, sin grew, but grace then was way more than enough. But Paul isn't content to say that. He makes up his own new Greek word. He takes that word and he adds a prefix to it. The, the Greek word from which we get our word hyper. Grace hyperabounded. Grace superabounded. There's, it's impossible for me to really capture this. I mean, he's saying, look, if, if your sin flows like a, a mighty river through your life, then the grace of God is like the Noahic flood. It, it drains it away. It washes it away. That's the idea. Sin increases with the law, but grace comes in like a raging flood and washes it all away. Grace hyperabounded. It's superabounded. Now why? Why did God make His grace superabound to us? Well, to, to end and to replace the reign of sin and death in our lives. Look at verse 21. He says, grace superabounded so that, here was the purpose, so that as sin reigned in death, or we could say as sin and death reigned. That was in Adam. That's who, what happened because of Adam, our representative. Even so, grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, sin and death reigned through Adam and through the law. God's law produced sin in us because of our fallenness. And that sin led to a guilty verdict, condemnation. And that guilty verdict of condemnation brought the sentence of death. Even so, he says, verse 21, Grace reigns through Jesus Christ our Lord. I love that. Grace reigns. God's grace provides us with the gift of righteousness he's talked about in this paragraph. And that righteousness, the righteousness of Christ credited to us, results in our justification. We're declared right with God based on the obedience of the One. And that justification then results in eternal life. Grace reigns. John Stott writes, nothing could sum up better the blessings of being in Christ than the expression, the reign of grace. 
For grace forgives sins through the cross. Grace bestows on the sinner both righteousness and eternal life. Grace satisfies the thirsty soul and fills the hungry with good things. Grace sanctifies sinners, shaping them into the image of Christ. And one day, grace will destroy death and consummate the kingdom. Grace reigns. Notice what he says. Grace reigns through our Lord Jesus Christ. Really what he's saying is this. Jesus Christ our Lord reigns in grace. We live in a kingdom overseen by Christ our Lord and His reign is characterized not by sin and death but by grace and life. What a powerful passage. But you know, I don't want to leave us there because I want to make sure we understand how Paul intended us to apply this. So briefly, let me give you the key lessons we learned from these verses. Very briefly, there are four of them. Key lessons we learned from these verses. Number one, Our justification in Christ happens exactly the same way as our condemnation in Adam. In other words, you contributed nothing to your condemnation in Adam. You didn't sin. Adam did. He sinned as your representative. You did nothing to contribute to your condemnation. And in the very same way, this is Paul's point, you contribute nothing to your justification. You contribute nothing. Our acceptance with God is not based on our faith. It's not based on our good works, our moral character, or anything in us whatsoever. Instead, our acceptance with God rests entirely and completely on the obedience of the one, our representative. But there is a key difference. Because how did you get to have Adam as your representative? You were conceived and born. That's it. You did nothing else. You were conceived and born. You were his descendant. Therefore, you were in Adam. He was your representative. But how does Christ become your representative? Well, this is a bit of a trick question because there are really two answers. There's one from from God's perspective and there's one from our perspective. From God's perspective, ultimately, Christ becomes your representative because God sovereignly chose you to be his own. In other words, we're talking about election. Is that what the Scriptures teach? Absolutely. Listen to Ephesians 1.4. The Father chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. He chose Christ to be our representative. He chose us to be in Him. So think about this. At the cross, when Jesus was dying for sin, God had already made Him your representative. He did it in eternity past. So as He died, He didn't die generically for people. He died for you. You were one He represented. And He died for your sins. Long before you had ever been born or ever repented and believed, God had already appointed Christ to be your representative because He had chosen you to be His. But there's another way that Christ comes to represent you because election ensures your eventual salvation, but election doesn't accomplish your salvation. So savingly, personally, practically, Christ becomes your representative only when you receive the free gift of righteousness that's described in this passage. When God gives you life, and into that life He brings and gives you the gift of repentance and faith, and you hear the gospel, and through that gospel, God draws you to Himself, the effectual call, and you, you use that faith and repentance that God has given you to exercise, and you believe and you repent at that very moment. 
Christ becomes your representative. You have now been placed in Christ. So justification happens exactly the same way as condemnation. Number two, second lesson. The principle of representation is what makes justification possible. Remember, God is righteous. He's just. He says the soul that sins it will die. He can't treat you like you live somebody else's life. The only way God can do that is through this principle of legal representation. God appointed Adam as our representative, and then having made him our legal representative, he could credit Adam's sinful act to us and treat us as if we had done it. That was perfectly just of God. In the same way, God appointed Christ as the representative of his people. He credited Christ's righteousness to us and then treats us as if we had done what Christ did. And that is equally just for God to do. In other words, both rest on the same legal precedent, the same legal principle. Just as representation brought us condemnation, it brings us justification. You can be as certain of your justification in Christ as you are of your condemnation in Adam because both stand on the same legal precedent. Number three, and this is really the point of the passage. Having Christ as our representative assures us of the security of our justification. You see, this is in a larger section of Romans. Remember chapters 5 through 8 that's talking about our security, the security of our justification in Christ. So why would Paul talk about all this deep theology stuff in the middle of a section that's supposed to be giving us security? Here's why. Because this reminds us that we now have a new representative, and as long as he represents us, our eternal future is secure. Until Jesus Christ sins, until he rebels against the will and word of God as Adam did, until he acts selfishly and sinfully to fulfill his own desires as Adam did in the garden, until he fails to be perfectly righteous, we are secure in him. And obviously you know none of those things can ever or will ever happen. Christian, you are more secure than the rock of Gibraltar. You are more secure than the universe Can I say this respectfully? You are as secure in your position as Jesus Christ himself is. Because you are in him. He is your representative. And he will never fail you like Adam did. And you will always, eternally get the credit for what he does. And number four, throughout this passage, God is inviting others to receive the free gift of righteousness that's found in Jesus Christ. He's inviting you. If you're here today, you're not in Christ. You've never repented and believed. You are in Adam. And God has condemned you, and you will suffer forever in hell if you die in that state. But God is gracious, and He's offering you to be in Christ, to receive the gift of righteousness. Not for anything you do, but because of the obedience of the One. It can be yours. If you are willing, how do you get that free gift? Well, you first got to turn loose of what you have in your hand. You got to turn loose of your own sin. That's called repentance. And you have to then put your faith in Christ. Even as we read from Luke 14 this morning, you got to be willing to follow him. That's biblical faith. And in response, you received the gift of righteousness. It can happen today if you're willing to turn from your sin and embrace Jesus Christ as Lord. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part eight of a series called The True and Better Adam. 
Next time, Tom will begin a new series, and we hope you'll join us then. But Tom, how about sharing a closing thought with us? You know, friend, this issue of sovereign grace is obviously a controversial one. But I hope today, as we've considered it, you see the amazing love of God in it. You see the grace of God extended to you in Christ. Imagine the fact that God, our Creator, in eternity past, set His love upon you, and He set you apart to be represented by His Son, Jesus Christ. And during those 33 years on earth, Jesus lived the life in your place you should have lived. And then He died the death that you had earned and that you deserved, just as I did as well. And then God raised him from the dead in acceptance of that great offering. That's the heart of the gospel. And that is the great encouragement of Christ's glorious substitution in our place, all because of God's sovereign grace. Thanks, Tom. Are you interested in attending the Master's Seminary? Countryside Bible Church is home to the Master's Seminary Dallas campus. Join Pastor Tom Pennington as he hosts the Master's Seminary Spring Preview Weekend, March 24th through the 27th at Countryside. You'll interact with Tom, attend seminary classes, and participate in the church life at Countryside. For more information and registration, go to thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You'll find out how to do that by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.